Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you, and we are here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some killer free ebooks, drills, exercises, a lot of stuff that's going to help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs in LA, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking, negotiation, relationship management. I could go on, but you get the idea. And we've got our live programs slash boot camps is what we call them, running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Details at bootcamps.theartofcharm.com or give us a call here in the office. Or you can even email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Phone number, of course, is on the website. I read everything and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with Harville Hendricks. He's an interesting guy. He's been in the game, if you will, for uh, since before I was born, literally. He's been a couples therapist for 40 years plus. He's an educator, clinical trainer, lecturer, whose work has been on Oprah 18 times. That's 18 times more than I've been on Oprah. We're gonna talk about how we're always looking for our parents and a mate, and why, and how daddy issues work, for real and what the characteristics of romantic love are and when the power struggle that happens in most relationships actually begins and how we can maybe rectify or reconcile that a little bit and what we need to know about our childhood to have a quote-unquote dream relationship. So enjoy this one with Dr. Harville Hendricks. So you've been at this for a long time, huh? Um, yeah, I... Uh, well, let's see. A long time means I became a clinician in 1965, but I became a full-time relational expert with a focus on couples. I think I would put that date around 1977-78. Right. That's good. That means you've been doing this since before I was born. Oh, my goodness. Just to make you feel extra old. No problem. Uh, make me feel older. So tell me, what's what's the basis for this? I mean, a lot of people, you know, when, when we're talking about zero negativity, that's one of the, the sort of quotes that we, we learn from. They think, oh, well, I have to be happy about everything or tell us what it's all about. I mean, you've been doing this for so long. You've got your relationship theory and therapy. You've got workshops, training programs, lectures, seminars, books. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here. What is this stuff based on? Because obviously you've been around for a long time. If you were full of it, people would have figured it out by now. Uh, and also, just to add to what we're doing, Helen and I are now doing a citywide project. We've taken on the whole city of Dallas. And our goal is to raise the relational wellness of Dallas in the next two to five years. So to working with a couple or with a group of couples, which we still do, we're going to work with the whole city. So what's it all based on? Let me start with... What we figured out about how people wind up, how couples wind up with each other. 
most couples after they've been with each other a while wonder how in the hell did I wind up with this person uh, who at the beginning was the person of my dreams and and uh, lo and behold, they become the person of my nightmares. And so how, how did that happen? So what we have done, and now there's been research to document it. Initially, it was a clinical observation through just general questioning. And then uh, some people who have done empirical research on it to establish that the way we get together is that when you're little, uh, around your caretakers, you create a picture of them. It's a picture that was recorded in two different places for the first four years in what's called implicit memory, which is uh, in the area of the brain uh, around the amygdala. And then later on, the, the hippocampus, when it comes online at age four, you begin to have event memory of your interactions with your caretakers. And so the brain creates this story about what you have to do to survive and what the role of the caretakers are in that. And it's very critical for the, the infant slash child. But what happens is this movie that's made, or you can call it a picture, we call it the Imago. Okay. The Imago is an internal image of the caretakers, of the necessary others for my survival when I'm little. That image then uh, is used in adulthood, uh, especially starts to go online in, the, uh, in, in adolescence when you begin the search for an intimate person, which is usually an adolescent process, middle to late adolescence and early adulthood, and then the rest of your life. Does that mean that this image that we create from our parents then forms who we look for in a mate? Exactly. Okay, no surprise there, because that's what, what people are saying when they're like, oh, daddy issues, you know, this girl has daddy issues. Right, exactly that, and the, the piece about it that's um, what's puzzling for a long time to us is that the part of the parents that was the most troublesome for the child tends to be a part of who we look for in adulthood. That is the worst experience we had with our parents guides us to a person with whom we'll have those same worst experience in adulthood. And that didn't make any sense for a long time until we finally figured out that there's a need not met, the core need not met in childhood is a need that's brought through the adult relationship to be met, but we pick a person in adulthood who's similar to the person in childhood with whom the need was not met. Right. And that that's a mutual selection so that that's the source of the ultimate frustration that people have in adult intimate relationships is that neither person comes equipped to meet the need the other person brought to the relationship from childhood. That's brilliant. Can I clarify that for the audience? And, and you tell me if I'm wrong and just making stuff up. So basically, if I have a need not met by my mom or my dad growing up, I got that picture that's burned into my, my memory or my, you know, my programming in my brain. I go out, I look for a similar mate, I find it, and I go, dang it, this person meets the exact same image that I was looking for in a caretaker, a.k.a. my parent, and it's got the exact same holes. It's the same Swiss cheese that I had, and so it's missing the exact same things. My mate is missing the exact same things as my parent. That's right. What I want the most and need the most, I can't get from this person because they're like the person with whom it went missing in childhood. Now, keep in mind that none of this is rational or in awareness. It is all, there's an unconscious perceptual process that Sigmund Freud discovered in the late 19th century that you see 
with one eye, you know, that's what he called the conscious perception, and there's unconscious perception. That unconscious perception is what does the selection. But when there's a match in the unconscious between image from childhood, character traits of the person I see across a crowded room, you're going to have this rush called romantic love, and you'll move like a moth to the flame to meet that person. They look wonderful, and then uh, after a while, it depends on how committed you become and how soon you become committed, the wonder goes away and turns into fear uh, because now you are with a person with whom you're feeling the same unmet needs and the same fears that you had in childhood. So we used to think that was really um, pathological and neurotic, but what we've discovered in the past 40 years is that that's normal and that that incompatibility between the need I have and the need resource you are for me is actually the basis for the most profound growth possible because what we've discovered is that the need you can't meet for me and what I want most from you is from a part of you that you had to shut down to survive as a child in your family. So like maybe, you know, men often shut down their emotions or they may shut down their playfulness or whatever else. My partner is going to want something from the part of me I shut down in childhood. And you know, I, my first reaction could be no way in hell. Uh, but if I get it that, and this is where some relationship education is helpful, that what she wants from me is my deepest opportunity for personal growth, that I can grow and, and evolve and bring into reality the part of me that my childhood didn't, then my partner's needs become a gift to me, a gift for my personal growth. And so when that's mutual, the relationship becomes the most powerful resource for emotional, relational growth and and, of, and even physical well-being that you can have because the match is so perfect that the need uh, is directed so precisely to the undeveloped part of the self. And if you do the growth, then you have the relationship of your dreams back, but now you have the skills to keep it. Wow. I mean... That's a, there's a lot there. And of course, it's like, hey, let's all get perfect relationships. Sounds good. Uh, but easier said than done. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a job. Right. And, and what is so fascinating is that the question about how, why do we go through all this suffering? Uh, when, why, why don't we just pick somebody who would meet our needs? And we asked, Helen and I puzzled with that for years as we were putting this theory together and the therapy together and interviewing and trying to get it clear. And what we discovered is that if you meet somebody who could meet your needs, you're not interested. You have to get what you need from somebody who won't give it to you. Why? That's ridiculous. Because it has to come from as somebody who is a uh, replica of the person from whom it should have come in childhood. In other words, the memory system is involved here. You want it from the caretaker. So the person you fall in love with will have so many similarities to your caretaker that the brain looks like it makes it identifies the partner with the caretaker and says, I want what I want from the person who didn't give it to me. And I'm not going to take it from anybody who will give it to me freely because <laughs> I need it from the person from whom it should have come when it should have come in childhood. Daddy issues. <laughs> so. That's the mechanism and the, and the catalyst for emotional growth and well-being and high-quality relationship when both people become partners 
in helping each other, what we say, our little koan is helping each other finish childhood. Excellent. So let me throw you a curveball, which I'm, I'm sure has never happened before. Um, <laughs> uh, what about if my parents are really, really awesome? What am I looking for that's missing? There's always going to be something missing, right? Because nobody's perfect. Is that I, I would imagine that's the, the theory here. Yeah. Well, so far, we've not found any perfect parents. Um, there, there, there may be some, but if so, they are so perfect, they don't show up in the filter of, mil, of the mental health world at all, or, you know, for study or research. And there is some research that says probably 10% of the population are uh, relationally healthy and have been for generations. And if so, then what still happens is that the brain still makes a mirror. I mean, it makes a, a picture of the caretakers. But these caretakers are need satisfying. And so when you grow up and you fall in love, you'll fall in love with somebody who still matches your imago. But there won't be these huge deficits and holes. As we know, I've never met a couple, even one with great marriages that don't have some issues because no parents are yet perfect. So they have some issues. But usually those parents who produce these healthy children have relationship skills that the children also internalize because the parents use them with the children. So uh, we've met some couples in our social life, not in our clinical work life, but in our social life, who naturally know how to deal with difference. And uh, Jordan, the bottom line for great relationships is that you have to know how to deal with difference. Difference is reality. There is nothing identical in the whole universe. God can't make a copy. So if you get upset with difference, then you're upset with reality. People who grow up in families that honor difference and say, hey, that's your opinion and that's valid and let's look at it instead of, hey, that's your opinion, it's invalid, so get rid of it, is a very different paradigm for a child. And therefore, but those skills are brought into adult relationships. People get married and live happily ever afterwards and work with their differences uh, with talent and skills. Um, but most people on the planet don't have that luxury. And so consequently, we have 50% divorce rate. That's been going on for 65 years. And half of the people who do stay married and don't get a divorce still have from fairly satisfying to fairly tolerable relationships. But they hang in there, and then the 50% who can't get a divorce. Dang. So, so what percentage of marriages would you estimate are like functional and decently happy? The research on that's about 10%. Oh, that's so sad. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, luckily, um, my parents are still married. They seem decently happy, even though I feel like they're the most ridiculous mismatch ever, but they seem to be doing okay. And my girlfriend's parents are still married, and they don't seem to be fighting a ton, and they get along pretty well. So, you know, one of my requirements in a partner was parents still married, um, which I thought was actually, I started to think that's an unrealistic expectation. Back to the show. Do you think that there's something to be said for somebody who grows up in a household where the parents are still married, or is it kind of like, eh, by the time your opinions are formed of who that person should be, your mate should be, you know, it doesn't really matter if they're still married 30 years later or not? Well, I think it matters. I think it matters for the child that the parents are married. There is research that says that if your relationship is really bad, that you should stay married for the sake of your children. 
that's a little bit counterintuitive is that that's correct because the research on broken families is 100% of those children have difficulties in adulthood unless there is what we call fortuitous presence of somebody else like a good grandparent or an uncle or a school teacher that helps the child. There's a whole category called the resilient child, uh, which can happen if a child runs into an adult who balances some of the uh, inadequacies of their parents. But the children who have stand the best chance, being emotionally uh, functional, able to themselves learn in school and to establish uh, relationships that are durable and act, learn new relationship skills, are children who do not lose uh, their connection with their parents, even though the parents may have been difficult with each other and difficult with the children. Something about a broken home and the loss of a parent triggers an anxiety level in people that is um, way more intense than being around uh, constant conflict. I mean, there's a part of me that my gut says, hey, if it gets so bad, it's better to get the children in a safe environment. Yeah. The research over the past 40 years goes against that sense of, um, of um, what is it, intuition, and says, well, it's the broken families that produce the worst children and even difficult families who stay together, their children do not suffer as much. It's that loss that produces such trauma. That is interesting. Wow, random tangent, but yeah, super interesting. Because, yeah, my gut says, oh, well, if the parents are fighting and it's not happy, then, you know, get them out of there and all that stuff. And, and it's that sense of loss. I know a lot of kids who grew up with divorced families. I, my best friend growing up, was their family was divorced, but it kind of fell into that, maybe that exception that you were mentioning, where the parents were divorced, but the dad and mom were both extremely nice, well-adjusted people. The mom got remarried to a really nice, well-adjusted guy pretty quickly afterwards, and the father moved like a mile and a half down the road and came over at almost every day, and we saw him as much as we saw his mom, who ran a daycare where we all stayed, and they got along really great, and they never like fought in front of us. I mean, and I, I practically lived there, and it just seemed like he had two dads and one mom. It was kind of weird like that. But I know plenty of other people that are divorced that it's like, you know, oh, well, your stupid father wants you to do this. And it's like, Ugh, all right, I'm going to go home. Yeah, well, your friend had, you know, the best of all possible post-divorce worlds. You know, constant access to both parents and the presence of new people who became parental that are positively parental in your life. That's a winning combination. And if you research at some point, there's some anxiety in him about that this, the broken family, even though there's access, would be there. But hey, that's that's really a good situation. Yeah, I just, I always thought, I realized how weird it was, because we became friends with more like five. So I realized how weird it was when other people's parents were divorced. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Your dad come over every day to pick you up? And it's like, no, I see my dad twice a month on the weekend. And it's like, what? He oh, my dad lives in another state. That doesn't make any sense. Very different outcome. Yeah, extremely different. Especially as we got older, it was like, ah, that's causing all kinds of problems. Those were always the kids that were out of control often enough. Right, right. And out of control. What's happening is that they're looking for something. They can't language it. Uh, so they have to act out. It's a way of expressing the pain, trying to get attention, 
usually doing things that get some less attention. But that acting out is in the search for something. And until that, you know, becomes conscious, then they are acting unconsciously and destructively in their relationships. And it's really a, a major problem in in Western culture now. I, I've just been to Korea, and they wanted uh, us over there, and then to Turkey and now Romania, because the divorce rate is going up with increasing democratization of those countries. And the democratization of the countries means that people marry people they fall in love with instead of most partners are picked by their parents. In these cultures that are becoming rapidly democratic, divorce rates going up, and it's just producing uh, social and economic chaos in Korea. The people over there said, we have to have Imago in this country. The arranged marriages were the problem? No, no. The loss of the stability in the family and the culture that comes when arranged marriages are no longer the basic marriage. When you move to the romantic marriage where you select your partner, which happens with the rising of democratic consciousness, that uh, produces a decrease in uh, relational stability. Yeah, that's interesting. Why, why do you think that is? I would love to make an argument for arranged marriage on my show just because it's so counter to what we talk about all the time. Not that I'm against arranged marriage or anything. It's just that we t constantly talk about developing ourselves and being able to filter the right people into your life. So I'd love to make an argument that you should just let your mom choose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, in the arranged marriage cultures, marriage is not about personal need satisfaction. Right. That's Marriage is about family stability and family reputation and economic stability uh, and so forth. So the community and the culture supports the stability of marriage, even if the two people married are not emotionally uh, very bonded to each other, they nevertheless stay together, make love, have children, and carry on a stable society. When romantic marriages appeared on the planet in the Western world in the uh, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, uh, you know, with the rise of of uh, democracies uh, after these after the wars, the uh, revolutionary wars in France and America in particular, when uh, that broke down the arranged marriage a mentality of Western civilization. Marriage moved from being having social and economic value to having personal and psychological value. Namely, it was about my needs. I'm going to be with somebody that I like, somebody I choose, with who will meet my sexual, emotional, and still function, hopefully, with social relevance and economic relevance. But when the marriage moved to personal need satisfaction, the instability of the marriage increased because, as we just said earlier, the unconscious selection process brings people together who are incompatible. And without a supporting social structure for the tension in those marriages, uh, people then choose not to be with each other. So in the 50s, we located somewhere right after the Second World War in the 50s, a uh, holding pattern of marriages that had been social began to give way and divorce rates began to rise, pretty much probably most historians say because when the war was over and men came home from the battlefield, women had moved into men's positions. They had been running businesses, they had been in the factories, they'd been doing the farms, and so women became empowered with the absence of men uh, during the Second World War, and so the that reintegration did not work. 
and the divorce rate began to rise. And by the 70s, had reached the 50% level in 20 years. And it stayed there for uh, the last uh, 65 years. What we're, Helen and I are excited about and why we're still out here is not just to talk about how this is all going and how uh, challenging it is, but that we think now there's a new intimate partnership. We can call it a partnership marriage, a conscious partnership that is appearing in which there's an interesting movement away from the self, that the marriage is about me, to uh, we are about our marriage. That is, the relationship is becoming primary. One of the ways we teach it, and we got this from a couple, they said, we think about our marriage like a garden, and the two of us are the caretakers of this garden. And the better we take care of the garden, the better the garden takes care of us. So that a whole new cultural shift in thinking is arising now, and we are a part of the megaphones of that, and our books are about that, that says that if you want a great marriage, you have to become the proponents of your marriage, not of your own needs. And paradoxically, when you become a proponent of your marriage and you create it as a safe place to be in which you can thrive, your needs will be met in a way they can never meet in the old arrangements where you were in competition with each other for need satisfaction. So we're moving into a whole new age now that we call the age of relationship, in which the value system will probably change if we have anything to do with it. Right. We'll change to be focused on relationship rather than the self. And the paradox of that is that when that happens, the value to the self will increase. So think about it like a forest. If you think about a forest, the floor of the forest, think about that as relationship. That's reality. And all the trees benefit from how healthy that floor is and how clean the air is. But if that floor of the forest, which is relationship out of which the trees arise, namely every individual, is unhealthy, then the trees will be unhealthy. So we're saying relationship needs to be primary value, self needs to be secondary, and paradoxically, that's the best benefit for the self. Excellent. That's, yeah, that's a really interesting analogy. But what are the characteristics of romantic love, and when does the sort of power struggle for meet my needs begin? Well, the characteristics of romantic love are, is that experience that, um, you know, being drawn like a moth to the flame, <laughs> yeah. uh, the feeling that, gosh, I've met you before, I uh, can't remember when I didn't know you, uh, we seem so to be just one with each other, and we're so compatible and can't stop thinking about you. Uh, we know that your brain is uh, full of uh, endorphins and dopamine. Your rational mind is not working. Then you're living in this in this wonderful world of Technicolor, which, by the way, we think is what human beings are naturally are. We are those people. Romantic love is really about a, a taste of what we really are when we're not anxious and defended and hurt. And that's why romantic love is so intoxicating. It's not just an emotional experience, but it's a taste of the essence of what it's like to be an optimal human. That is, and we call that living without anxiety and defenses. So that's romantic love. So what happens is that it appears that there's a dopamine blockout during the time that, you, that you're falling in love, and meaning your prefrontal cortex has been knocked out by your own blood chemistry. So, is the prefrontal cortex the one that makes all the rational, logical decisions, like don't date a crazy person? That's right. That's, that's the thinking brain. 
and the, what we call the, the upper brain. And then there's the midbrain, uh, is the, the limbic brain, where all the emotions are, where all the feelings are. And, and that's the brain that produces uh, when the amygdala or the vagal branch, which is that part that senses danger, sort of goes offline and lies down and goes to sleep is when all these endorphin and dopamine chemicals are running through the bloodstream. It feels totally safe. It feels wonderful. With the person of your dreams, something is going to last forever. And then uh, the dopamine wears off and some reality of this person that you didn't see that's similar to the reality of that part of your parents that was troublesome for you shows up, like they're detached or cold or they don't return a phone call or you wake up one morning and look at them and say, oh my God, you know, after the drugs wear off, you see them for who they are, warts and all, and that's shocking. So that's when they become the person of your nightmares because you that re-triggers the anxiety that you had in childhood about needs not being met. I remember in my own case, in my first marriage, that on the honeymoon, we were on a beach and I was walking about 10 or 15 feet behind her. We were just kind of looking at the beach and I looked up and I went into a panic. And then, I, of course, I was the therapist. So I went back to therapy off the honeymoon. And I said, I got to figure out what in the world did I go into panic? And what I was aware of was that my ex-wife at that time on the honeymoon had hunched over in, in a way that triggered a memory that I finally got back of looking at the back of my mother hunched over uh, either stove or the dishwashing, and I couldn't get her attention as an infant. And so when I saw that hunch over, some part of me said, you're never going to get her attention. So, you know, if I hadn't been psychologically minded, I probably wouldn't have paid much attention to that. But it was very curious. So. That's what produces the power struggle is the dopamine goes away. The endorphins are gone. You begin to see reality. Then you start producing cortisol. Cortisol is the chemical that says it's not too safe here now. It's stress hormone. It's a stress hormone. And then you start defending yourself. And when you start defending yourself, you trigger your partner's anxiety. They start defending themselves. Then what you have is a relationship of defenses rather than a relationship between your authentic selves. And that power struggle then about becomes who's going to win, whose needs are going to be met, whose ideas are going to run our family, uh, who's going to be on top. We call it a vertical. What happens then is a vertical relationship, each person buying for dominance. So that's what produces uh, the divorce rate. And for the people who don't divorce, it produces what we call the hot marriage, meaning till death do we stop fighting. Or the parallel marriage, meaning we'll never touch again. We'll live together and carry on our lives, but we'll get our emotional needs met somewhere else. So what Helen and I say, hey, you got a fourth choice. Uh, the fourth choice is to create a conscious partnership in which you know all this and you co-create a relationship in which your needs will actually be met. Excellent. One of the interesting, let me just kind of finish up this role. Yeah. One interesting things that we discovered was a nuance. It's the, uh, the value of doing something long enough to discover what you're doing, what works and what you're doing and what's not working, and to discover that what you didn't know was working is what is working. And for a long time, we thought that what worked was helping people have good conversations about their issues so that they could arrive at a resolution. 
And the, then we notice that some couples never get to resolution and some couples do. And the ones who get to resolution have, it has very little to do with what they actually resolve. It has to do with the way they talk to each other while they're resolving it. And the couples who don't resolve, they don't get there because no matter what agreements they make, the way they talk to each other prevents them from activating the solutions. So we discovered that tone, uh, being present to, not being negative and being and not being judgmental, being warm and kind and caring and interested and curious, even around huge differences, to still stay in that mode of empathic relating and caring relating while discussing a very intractable difference is what connects couples. And when they feel connected, then their problems are solvable. And when they're connected, they feel safe with each other. Safety began to show up as the non-negotiable quality of a thriving relationship. But if a couple doesn't feel safe, then no matter how, many, how well they work on communication skills and conflict resolution, doesn't work because without safety, there's no motivation to change. With safety, there's a motivation to change. So what we discovered and the language you use is that being present to your partner, being present to and with another person without judgment, but with curiosity is what heals all childhood wounds. That's what got lost in childhood. When you recover that being present to and with another person, then something happens in the brain that helps you recover the sense of well-being that you experience in romantic love and experience as an infant before your parents um, did something that took it away. Um, and their parents took it away from them. So it's not like parent bashing. It's that this is the way the human race is set up right now. So that being present to, we call it connecting or being present and so forth. The subtlety, that nuance is what makes a relationship thrive and powerful and wonderful. And when that's not there, no matter how well you manage the relationship, you don't feel intimate and close. Wow, that is interesting. And it, and it seems complex, but I want to break it down a little bit. I mean, how do we reduce our anxiety within our relationships? Like what practical steps can we take if we're listening to this and we're like, oh my God, I have you know all kinds of inner child issues. Where do I even begin cleaning this up? I mean, we have to, well, I guess, where do we start? What would we need to know about our childhood to put this relationship into place? And how do we start to reduce our anxiety inside the relationship? Yeah, well, it really is important to know something about what in childhood gets triggered in your relationship. And that's easy to find out. Just look at what is the complaint you have over and over again. We say if you if you complain about something three times and you feel intensely about it, that came from childhood and it's showing up in your relationship. And so if you know that, you know, like I know of one, just a, an example comes up that a very subtle kind of thing that a, a particular a guy I was working with trying to identify what was his trigger. And his trigger is always when he's talking to his partner, his wife, if the partner looks away, and you can imagine how much that got amplified with the cell phone, when, when texting came in, if the partner looks away while he's talking intensely, 
he just goes into a panic and then into a rage. And he says, what is that? I mean, she just, you know, answered a text. In doing what we call retroanalysis of that, looking back at the past, he discovered that he can never keep his mother's face turned toward him. That the mother was too distracted. She had something like ADHD and just was never there. And he felt all of us feel comfortable when we're having a face-on conversation. But he never got that in childhood. So when his wife would look away, that would trigger this anxiety and panic and desire that he had from childhood. So it's good to identify that and to identify your partners so that you know what the triggers are. And that can be done in very in a set of easy uh, exercises. What makes the, the question that you asked that is additionally very important is how do you create a safe relationship? We have worked on that for 30 years because we discovered that, as I said, safety is non-negotiable. How do couples do that? So one thing is that we uh, people learn how to, um, how to talk. Most people don't know how to talk. Um, most people say people don't know how to listen, but we've discovered people don't know how to talk. Because usually when we talk, we take a position of authority. Uh, we know things. We know things that our partner should know. And we call that a vertical conversation or monologue. And what's important is that you learn how to have a dialogue in which it's a lateral or horizontal conversation. And both people's points of view are spoken, mirrored, validated, empathized with, listened to, respected, accepted. Um, and, and they're always going to be different. So I mean, there's no such thing as sameness. There may be similarity, but not, not sameness. So both people do that with that mutual respect. And there are all these conversations, there are a lot of little nuances, that when you want to have a conversation with your partner, you ask them if they're available. That was kind of a serendipitous discovery mm -hmm. uh, that people said. You know, one woman said, you know, when you want to talk to me, you just walk in the kitchen and stop, start talking. And my mind is on something else. And then you tell me that I'm not listening. And of course, I'm not listening because I'm thinking about something else. And you've been gone all day. So we said, well, what would work? Well, when you come in the kitchen and say, hey, Mary, like talk about something. Is now a good time? That seems simple enough. She said, well, no, not right now, but maybe in 10 minutes. Oh, OK. So we call it an appointment process. So it's just sort of um, respectable to say is now a good time to talk about. Uh, something and only do that when somebody is available to talk and then the conversation is structured I say something and you mirror it back to me with accuracy and no judgment And you keep asking me if there's more I have to say about that We say the, the magic phrase is is there more? Rather than are you done yet? Or can I tell you what I think now? But that you sit with your partner. This is what we mean by connecting that we use curiosities. Is there more about that? And keep mirror, mirroring and listening and asking that question until the person, well, no, I, I think that's it. And then you say something like, well, gosh, that makes sense. And the sense it makes is that uh, when we had a you know dinner party at seven and I didn't get there and it was late and didn't call you, that you'd be anxious about that and maybe upset with me about that. That really makes sense. And I, and I can imagine that you'd feel great if I would be empathic. You'd feel great if I would call you ahead of time if I'm going to be late. Just learning how to have a safe conversation that is non-judgmental and non-accusing. Then the other thing we've added to it to sort of a, a turbo, when you turbo an engine, you can turbo a relationship by making a decision. 
Uh, we call it the zero negativity process. Okay. And what that means is we define negativity as uh, a put down. And it's not that you can't have negative feelings or thoughts or feel sad or mad or angry. It's just that in all interactions with your partner, you avoid putting them down, like saying, what? Where'd you get that? What kind of thought is that? Where did that come from? Why would you think that? You know, like you stupid person. Mm -hmm. That if you avoid the put down, then the person doesn't have to go, then get triggered, don't rupture connection, trigger anxiety, then defenses. So zero negativity is in all conversations I have with my partner, I will affirm them as different with the right to their opinions. I don't have to agree with them, but I'm not going to make them bad because they're different. And I'm not going to make them less than me in value uh, because they're different. In other words, I will not do a put down. But and, so, and we found that couples who, who do that, that is to eliminate the put down, then have a safe environment in which they can actually talk about the things in their relationship that's not working. But if they use put downs, then they don't get to talk about their problems because they're all reacting to the put down. So the negative and we call it the negative, the toxicity of the emotional environment prevents you from actually dealing with issues that you need in order to make your relationship thrive. So that's the second thing to make it safe. And the third thing we discovered is that you can't just take stuff out of a relationship like negativity. It's really important to have a pattern of what we call chronic affirmations. And chronic affirmations simply means saying, doing appreciations, like uh, Helen, Helen and I do three appreciations every night before we go to sleep. And the appreciation is for something that happened that day, not just something in general. But gosh, I appreciate that today when we came into the meeting, you brought a second cup of coffee for me. Or this morning when we woke up, you took my hand, looked at me in the eye and smiled at me and said, I love you. Or, you know, you um, did a great job talking with our daughter about uh, something today. And I really appreciate that, that you appreciate some behavior your partner did every day. And you don't repeat them the next day. That's a great idea. So it's like gratitude minute for your relationship. What that does is it actually begins to change perceptual processes in your brain so that you begin looking at your partner in a non-negative way. You look at them as a, as a source of actually pleasure that you can appreciate. And you build new neural pathways with that. So eventually you change actually your image of your partner. And if there's zero negativity, you're not triggering uh, cortisol in the interactions with your partner. You're triggering with the affirmations, uh, endorphins, and that sort of safety. Those three things, safe conversation, safe structured conversation, zero negativity, and uh, consistent affirmations creates a safe environment in which you feel connecting. And when you're feeling connecting, you're feeling being, you're feeling what we are. We are beings who are connecting. You're feeling that, and when you feel that, you feel joyful. And to sustain that creates the optimal relationship where you, it actually impacts your physical health as well as your emotional health, your relational health, and your work health, and everything, when you're feeling that sense of connecting in a relationship because you're feeling reality, what things really are. That gratitude sort of practice is brilliant because we do this in business, even at the Art of Charm, where you brag about somebody else and 
you know, you yeah. tell other people what they did and what you appreciated about them and how they helped you do work this week, but I never actually thought of applying it to relationships, which is funny because it's actually probably more important in a relationship because there are only two of you, generally speaking, in the relationship versus in a business where you might, maybe your boss didn't appreciate you one day, but somebody else did. And it's, you know, you can get some positive reinforcement or feedback or gratitude in other ways. But in your relationship, it seems like it can only really come from yourself or the other person. Exactly. What is it? It's the oxygen in the relationship. Right. I know that this person I live with appreciates me, sees me, values me. And I don't have to walk around wondering, am I going to get hit? Because I know when I see them, I will see soft eyes. I'll see a smile. If they have an issue or a problem with me, they'll ask me for an appointment. We'll sit down and have a dialogical conversation. We'll work it out. And I'm not going to have to be scared. And boy, that is the optimal relationship. Because I think anxiety is what drives all of us to do crazy things. Yeah, fear. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, Fear breeds that insecurity, which breeds those actions as a result of insecurity, which then damages, causes permanent damage to the relationship. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Harville. I know that uh, this is something we could talk about for hours and hours, and hopefully we'll have you back at some point. But I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Jordan. You got it. Thank you for your wisdom. Much appreciated. And I'll let you know when this is out and released to the world. Oh, thanks very much. And wish you well with it and with your work. I understand from Paul that you're having fun. Yes, definitely. And it's uh, hopefully we can make some big impact and, and like you are. I, sounds like you are. Have a great holiday. Bye-bye. Interesting. Dr. Hendricks did an amazing job. So much we could have talked about. We only had a limited amount of time. I love the ritual for appreciation. I actually put that in my calendar to do every day. Uh, and I think that alone was worth the price of admission. Hopefully you guys feel the same. Show feedback and guest suggestions. This show is a fanarchy. It's run by you. So we want to hear if you know someone who's good for the show, especially if they have an audience of their own, helps us grow. Email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Dr. Hendricks on Twitter. If he's got one, we'll have that linked up in the show notes. Should have done my research on that one. Bootcamp details, bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Remember the two dots in there. And if you're listening to this, but you're not subscribed, well, subscribe. It's really easy in iTunes or any podcast app. Just click subscribe. Do I really need to walk you through it? Alternately, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android. Those are free. They stream to your phone. No big deal. And of course, Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Trump podcast. And in the meantime, go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person and or shared on the web. Have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.